Okay, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being here. We are in Mark chapter 11. Uh, we're going to try to get to verses 1 through 26. It's going to be Sunday and Monday of Palm Sunday, or of the, uh, uh, the last week of Jesus' ministry. What's interesting, the book of Mark, the last one-third of the book the, is one week. It's seven days. So a third of the gospel of Mark is seven days, uh, and everything's been working up to this point. And since chapter 8, it says in Jesus, when he was in Galilee up at Caesarea Philippi, set to go to Jerusalem. Since chapter 8, he's been coming to Jerusalem. So it actually begins at the halfway point at Caesarea Philippi when he reveals who he is and, and Peter identifies himself, him as the Messiah. Jesus sets on his way to Jerusalem. So half the book of Mark is the journey to Jerusalem and what takes place in Jerusalem. And the last third of it, of course, is these last seven days. Um, I'll read through it very quickly here in, in Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 26. Uh, several things are taking place. We did begin this, chapter 11, verses 1 through 11 last week. Uh, again, the point of that being he's coming in as a king, he's received as a king, as a, some great deliverer uh, by the crowds. Uh, a lot of enthusiasm. But when he goes to the temple, he just, he, he just leaves. Nothing happens. There's no big reception at the temple for him, just coming in. The next day when he goes in, uh, uh, he's going to actually have a conflict. It's going to be a sandwich, a literary sandwich. He's going to be leaving uh, Bethany up through Bethphage and passes by the fig tree. He's going to curse the fig tree, and that's caused a lot of problems for people. He curses the fig tree, and the fig tree dies, and he goes to get figs and doesn't get any, and almost like a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a divine rage, curses the tree so that it dies. Uh, we'll talk about that here in just a moment. The fig tree, he curses it, goes into the temple mount, and there he drives out the money changers. We'll talk about what's taking place right there in the temple mount, and the next day when they come by, the fig tree is dead. And this basically is a parable, an active parable of him acting out like you see Ezekiel acting out certain things. We go through Ezekiel, uh, Isaiah acting out certain scenes. They can, they can say it, they can preach it, they can write it, or they could do like Ezekiel does several times. He does a play and the people ask him questions. What are you, what are you doing? And he explains it or they just watch him. This is an active demonstration for the disciples of what's taking place here in the temple is he looks for fruit, doesn't find any. He comes into the temple, looks for fruit, finds business. They're using the temple to make money, drives them out, and this is done. Not one stone's going to be left upon another. And they come back to the fig tree, it's withered from the roots. In other words, it's, it's, a, it's a parable. Again, the, even guys like Bertrand Russell, which was a, a philosopher, I did a research paper on him in the 70s for college, uh, an atheist, and, uh, and, and others, even Bible teachers, have trouble with Jesus. Looks like he's stopping by McDonald's to get breakfast at a fig tree, and drive throughs not open, so he just burns the building down and goes on into the city. It's like, well, what, what was going on there? It's like he just got mad and just curses a fig tree. It's like you can see why he gets mad at the Sadducees and the Pharisees or, or people that have unbelief, but to get mad at a fig tree, it's like, calm down. Well, he wasn't irate. He was, again, you, 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 you can go that way and say he was just lost his temper. And Bertrand Russell says there's, in, in, in his argument, he says 
there's people that are, are better people that would have handled the situation better than Jesus, as if he's going through drive-through and they mess up his order. I mean, that, that, that wasn't, he wasn't just you know, having a bad day or drive-through didn't get his order right. He's using it as an illustration. So that's going to be a, a stumbling point as we go through this. Uh, but it all parallels together. Again, it's a sandwich. The fig tree, the events of the temple, and the fig tree. So here we go, chapter 11, verses 1 through 26. We'll just read through all the verses. As they approached Jerusalem, coming from Jericho, and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of the disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Tell them the Lord needs it, and we'll, re- we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside the street, tied in a, at a doorway, and they untied it. Some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus, they threw their cloaks over it, and he sat on it. Now this is, uh, again, r- coming right out of a fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9, and we've got some notes on that. We've already gone over that in Zechariah on Tuesday nights, but this is the fulfillment of it. Uh, they threw their coats over it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, from Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Again, this could be a very big day. This is They're receiving uh, with great enthusiasm, great joy, but there's going to be nothing come from it. It's, even the wording is the same. Uh, the references to the, the parable of the sower, where the seed is sown, and some receive it with great joy, but as soon as the sun comes, it scorches it because it had no roots. And that would be the situation here. They're receiving it with great joy because they think this is what's going to happen, but they don't have any roots to really understand what is taking place. And, well, then right here, uh, Hosanna in the highest, verse 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, went out to Bethany with the 12, and very anticlimactic, almost again, in a, like I said last week, it's almost like, like humorous. It's almost like sar- ironic. It's like, well, what is taking place there? The big entry, and he's going to go to the temple mound. You'd think when he got to the temple mound, they'd be, you know, the priests would be all responding, but not, no, business as usual. They're too busy focused on, apparently, business as usual. I mean, it's, it says it's late, but they would have had time to, like, squeeze in some kind of a conversation, some kind of an event, but nothing. Then, the next day, verse 12, so they went back to Bethany, spent the night. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, that's, I'm going to explain it to you, in leaf, he went to find out if, there ha- if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. I will explain that. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. That's the first part of the bookends. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area. Now remember, yesterday, I mean, it was just last night, Sunday night, he enters the temple in the evening, he goes in, nothing happens, and he walks out. Something maybe should have happened. There should have been some response. 
he goes in this time, and this time he instantly, Jesus into the temple area and began driving out. I'll explain the temple area. This is, you're looking right here at the temple mound as it remains today. The temple was right here where the Dome of the Rock is standing today. So it was a building right here. We'll look at some images. But there's a large area here. There's a court of the Gentiles. Then there's a court for women. Then there's a court for the Jewish men. And then the temple precincts where the priests would be active. And then, of course, the holy place. Uh, He goes into this area, mainly the court of the Gentiles, uh, temple area, and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said to them, is it not written? Now what he's going to quote from right here, he's quoting from Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7 is the temple message where Jeremiah goes to the temple. It's his last message on the temple. Jeremiah's last message on the temple early in his ministry. He didn't spend, he was a priest. And so he worked in the temple, was trained to be a priest. And when he began to speak as a prophet and condemn the people and speak for God, he goes up to the temple mount and says to them, uh, you say this temple, this temple, oh, the temple, they can save me. He, he, he began and says, no, he says, this is, this is not going to save you. You are in trouble. And they would not let him come back up. And we'll look at that, that, that verse or chapter in a moment. But in there it says, is it not written... My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Okay, that first verse is out of Isaiah, that this is supposed to be a house for all nations. The second verse, but you have made it a den of robbers, is from Jeremiah chapter 7. And we'll look at those, those are very important. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they heard him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. There's words right there that exactly the same wording that Mark used when he went into the synagogue in Capernaum. The people heard him. They were amazed. People wanted to kill him because of his words, because of the attention. It's a repeat of what took place in Galilee at the synagogue. It takes place now on the Temple Mount. Uh, they were afraid of him. The crowd was amazed at his teaching. And the people decided to kill him. When evening came, they went out of the city, went back to Bethany. In the morning, as they went along, so that would be Monday. Now, this would be Tuesday morning. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Jesus' response, have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. Uh, and then if you have right there, Uh, there's a verse 26 but if you do not forgive neither will your father who is in heaven forgive your sins that's again you can see in your footnotes it's a a verse that's in question and that's another topic okay um looking on the the notes on the on the first page uh just to see this uh what you have that first diagram and i should put this up here on the screen but you've got uh, the mount of olives over here with the kidron valley coming up to mount moriah with the temple being built on it this Mount Moriah, or Temple, uh, excuse me, 
Mount of Olives, as you can see, is 400 feet high in this case, in this diagram. The Jerusalem, the Temple Mount up in here, would be like at the 200-foot level. Uh, even the city of Jerusalem is maybe 100 feet below that. So the Mount of Olives is 300 feet higher than the main city of Jerusalem. So you can see even up here, as you come up here, you're looking down. In fact, if you want to get a perspective, I'm standing on the Mount of Olives taking that picture looking into Jerusalem. And this is one of the summits. In fact, the road that Jesus took from Jericho, Jericho, they would leave Jericho and head southwest towards Jerusalem. They would come up to the summit right about here. It's a Roman road, somewhere about in this area here. And they would then, it would come out at it would come out at the place called Bethphage. That's where it mentions Bethphage. And then it would, you'd turn left and go back south, and on the eastern side it would be where Bethany was at. So if we were looking at, I just wanted you to see, okay, look at the pictures here again. I have the, the drawing there, and this is the same thing. You see the Mount of Olives over here, looking down the Kidron Valley, and the Mount Moriah is right here, the Temple Mount. So you can kind of see a visual of what the diagram is right there, and you can see that picture. The, what I'm talking about, if you've got the Mount of Olives here, the Kidron Valley running here, Mount Moriah rising right up here, and here's the Temple Mount in this general area right here, they would come up from Jericho on a road that would come out at the summit at Bethphage, and then uh, they would then come on into the city, but they would turn here and go over onto the east side. This is the west side on the east side, and this would be Bethany. Uh, Bethany is exactly two miles from Jerusalem. And then there's another place over on, on this side. Uh, uh, I've got it written in here. It's, it's one of the cities where, where David dealt with. Um, oh, I'm looking in the notes now. Oh, boy. We're several pages deep into the notes. Um, we'll go to page 8.6. The road from Jericho ran directly to the summit of Mount Olives at Bethphage. The road passed between Bahiram. Bahiram would be right here. Bahiram. It, it's mentioned in the story of David. So you got Bahiram over here. Now, if you want to add to this, you're going to have uh, uh, where uh, uh, this is Jeremiah was from. His city is right here, another about two miles from here. Uh, Anathoth. The, it was a priestly city, so you could see it from here. Uh, so those, there's a lot of little cities around that area. But th this is Bethany, about two miles from Jerusalem. And that's going to be, as you can see on the map eventually, we got the maps from last week, you'll be able to see the journey into the town on Mondays and Tuesdays. Looking at the Nix map on page two, uh, we've got several things here. I've got several different details of maps of, of the Temple Mount. Uh, the first one, let's not look at right now. That's the modern look right here. That top one is the modern look. The east side is going to go this way. So this would be facing east. This way would be Mount of Olives on this side. So Jesus would have come in from the top on this side. This is just shows you some of the diagrams of what it looks like today. Uh, and we'll talk about that. On this picture, I'm pointing at a row of, of stones right here that are the western wall of, of, uh, of Solomon's temple. Now, real quickly, uh, if we have, like, here's the Mount Moriah, here's the Kidron Valley, and here's the Mount of Olives coming up there, the, the Temple Mount, it, it's, it's a mound, and so it's, it's going to have a, a crown to it. They want a flat surface. Even Solomon would do this. They would build a retaining wall starting down here on a footing. They'd build 
a foundation wall up like this, and on there would be, they'd fill this in with dirt, there'd be a foundation wall here, they'd fill this in with dirt and fill, so now they've got a level supported, it's like a retaining wall. Then on top of this, they would build a wall, you know, all the way around, and then they'd have the temple building on the inside of that. Now, that is 500 by 500 cubits, and you can see that on this top diagram, there's that bottom line, it says line of Solomon's buried west wall, that's this one wall, wall right there, if, if you understand what I'm saying. I'm pointing to it right there, because you can see this top stone on, when you're standing right there at this point, right, it's, it's the found bottom stone of this set of stairs. And if you notice, that set of stairs is not in line with the actual platform that the Muslims have built, that those stones are not in line. They're, they're in line with Solomon's wall, using that bottom or top of the wall as the bottom stone, and they're sitting at a little bit of an angle. And you can see it right here, you're going up there. I've got, this is the picture of it going up those steps. So that's Solomon's wall here and here. Um, and uh, that, anyway, that, I could go on about that. Now, Herod is going to come by, say, 20 B.C., and he's going to expand it to the south, to the north, and to the west. So he's going to come in and build a retaining wall here and fill this in, like here. This will all be filled in. Not, it's not going to move it to the east, but we'll move it further to the south and move it further to the north. And so now this becomes Herod's wall. And I've got other pictures of, of that I was standing right here taking pictures of this bottom stone right here coming in from the pool from Siloam walking up right here uh, because it's the gutter. You can walk under the road that the blind man walked down that goes down the pool of Siloam. There's a gutter underneath that road that's, you know, like this wide. You'd walk all the way up to, under the city. We came up right here, and, and I took some pictures of that. Um, anyway, this would be Solomon's. And you can see... In the middle of this top picture, you can see that uh, there's a perfect square, dotted square. It says Solomon's 950 Temple Mount Wall. That's the retaining wall on Mount Moriah. That's been buried because Herod expanded it to the north and then to the south and then a little bit to the west right there, if that makes sense to you. And that's what you see right here. So Solomon's temple would be like, uh, Temple Mount would be like maybe like right here like this. Well, in fact, I could show you. You can see the seams in the wall right here. I've got that in the book identifying the Hasmonean extension, and then the Herodian extension. You can see those, there's seams in the wall there. Uh, but this goes all the way out to here now. This was Herod's in Jesus. So this would be the wall. Again, it's, it was knocked down and then rebuilt. You can see the original stones because they're Herodian stones, very nicely faced, very nice. They're large-sized. And you can see them along this wall here. And then when the, you can see at a certain point, especially if you look in the Jerusalem book, you can see where the, they become smaller like rocks or just blocks and just kind of packing them in. That's them rebuilding the walls. And it wasn't built, rebuilt by the Christians. The Christians left it in rubble until the, the Muslims came by and began to rebuild it. So if you went in here in 400, 500 A.D., you could just walk right over this mountain. This would just be rubble. It was nothing. So then the Muslims began to rebuild the walls because the Christians just saw that as, you know, Jesus' prophecy. There won't be one stone left upon another. They said, look, see. And then they built the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is right here. And that became their holy spot. And they had a road, the, the main cardo, and that it became a Christian. And of course, it was overrun by the Muslims. And the Muslims rebuilt this and put this on top of the Dome of the, or Dome of the Rock, on top of the Temple Mount. Anyway, uh, you can still see some of those stones that are there. Um, 
the reason we're looking at that is now look at the picture on p bottom of page two. And this is going to come into play tonight. Uh, now we're looking, the top of the picture is north, and the south is right here. There's steps right here. You see these steps right here? These steps are right here. There's steps right here going right up here to this wall. So this wall is that southern wall. You can still see the steps, and you see those two black holes, black squares there? That's where the stairway comes out on the Temple Mount. They are right up here. In fact, you can, you can actually, if you're a Muslim, you could stand here. You could go down the steps to where these steps come out. It's blocked. With, with stones, the Crusaders blocked it shut, but you can still access those stairs that are those two black squares right there that go down the stairwell. So you'd enter here, go up a set of internal stairs and come out on the Temple Mount right here. And when you come out, there's a, a square there that is called the Court of the Gentiles. This is, this is a big deal for our story tonight. And, and we'll go through those verses. So here is, uh, again, a rough drawing. You've got your little more scale drawings there. Here's those stairs right here that you can see on that picture, and I've, I've got uh, better pictures of them other places. You can see in the, in the Jerusalem book. They're underneath a stairway underneath here, and it comes out right about here, and there's an opening, and you can still see those stairs. You can stand there, and I've looked down there, been tempted to run down there and take some pictures, but you know, I probably wouldn't be here today. Um, but you can look down those stairs. Uh, then inside of here, back in, in Jesus' day, there would have been this court right here called the Court of the Gentiles. Going all the way around this were pillars called uh, Solomon's Colonnade. goes all the way around. They were 30 foot tall, according to Josephus. Uh, he, Josephus says it'd take three men to touch hands to go around each of those, temp, those stones or those pillars all the way around. Then there'd be a wooden beam going across the top of cedar, uh, and it's possible that some of those cedar beams are still in existence today. The Muslims have been burning them as they find them, but they are in this right here. This is the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and there, during an earthquake, there's some trouble like a few years ago, and you could see some of the beams, and some of the beams in there were cedars. The, some of them, I, I got pictures of them over here by the eastern gate on the inside before they were burnt, and they had they had done some testing on them, and they were two to three thousand years old from Lebanon. Some of them had carvings on them from the, from the ancient world. And because they're cedars from Lebanon, they don't decay. That's what, they, that's what they're used for. And they're in a dry area. And in this case, they're in the roof. They're in the building structure. And they've been protected for years. And so some of these cedars still exist. Uh, anyway, they, they, went, they would come across here. Uh, there's even notches in the wall uh, Fort Antonia Fortress in the rocks. You can see where the, the squares cut into the rocks where they'd set the, the beams in. Well, then, they, on those beams, they would set wooden panels, ceilings on there. And so this would, this would be a, a walkway, a colonnaded walkway all the way around like a, like a road. For the Middle East, where, where it's hot, you could go out here in the sun, but you could walk all the way around the temple in, in, through that, on that colonnade. Now, the church would meet in the book of Acts in Solomon's colonnade. They would meet on the temple. The church would meet on Solomon's colonnade. They would meet here underneath this, this walkway. Uh, and then that was, was like that. And now this was the court of Gentiles. And then inside of that, you can see there, the court of the Gentiles. Then here would be the temple, just another court of the temple. And in there, you're going to have a gate that you could come in. And the first gate you could come through, this would be the court of women. Now, I'm sorry. I mean, it's like, well, that's not fair. What about equal rights? It's like, uh, 
this is the hierarchy God establishes the way it is. Deal with it. Uh, it's not a Western culture, but nonetheless, it's, it's what God established. Nonetheless, the court of women, this is the Gentiles. The women could come in here, and then you're going to have the next court would be the, uh, the court of, uh, yeah, right there. Here would be the temple precincts right here. This would be the court of men or the Israeli men. And then in here would be the outer court where you'd have your altar, where they'd offer the sacrifices, the bronze basin. The priests and Levites could go in here, and the priests could go in here once a year in the most holy place. So it's like no matter where you fall, unless you were the high priest, he was the only one that could go here, and none of the men of Israel or the women of Israel could go in here. And even if you're a priest that had some kind of a defect, you couldn't go in there. I mean, you could be a priest that lost a hand or something, cutting stones for the temple. Sorry, you're no longer clean enough to enter the temple. Well, that's not right. It's like, that's law. The Jewish men could go here. But if you were Alexander the Great and you came and he did come and worship here, he could only come into the court of Gentiles. He'd have to worship from here. If he brought a sacrifice, he'd have to give it to the priest. The priest would come in and bring it into here for him. Alexander the Great, and he stopped there because he respected them. Now, Pompey, when Pompey comes in in 68 B.C., the, the Roman general, he entered the city. It's like, okay, what's this all about? He marches right in there, pulls the curtain back, and there's nothing there except a, a, a rectangular room, not rectangular, a cube room, uh, and there's, there's nothing there. There's no God. There's no image. There's no statue. There's, there's nothing here. And it completely baffled the pagan uh, Pompey. Now you say, why didn't he drop dead? Because he went into the most holy place. Uzziah, the high priest, or excuse me, Uzziah the king, Azariah also, decided he wanted to worship God and burn incense on the altar. And he went in here and he broke out in leprosy and they rushed him out. He never came back in the city again because he became a leper by walking in where he shouldn't have gone. Why could Pompey, the Roman general, walk in there? The difference, the main difference is... Uh, Uzziah, Azariah, went in there before Solomon's temple was destroyed and before Ezekiel records in chapter 11 God's glory coming out to the threshold, moving out to the Mount of Olives and moving to the east. And that's when God's glory left. It's recorded in the Bible. And now they rebuild it in Zerubbabel's day, but there's never a record of God's glory re-entering the temple. Now, you can debate that if you want to, but there's a very... a definite place where God's glory entered the tabernacle in the wilderness because it came down and there was smoke coming out. There was presence there. And only Moses could go in while the smoke, the glory of God had, was entering. And on Solomon, the glory enters in Solomon's day. It's recorded in Scripture. Ezekiel records the glory leaving, but it never was recorded that it came back after they rebuilt it. That's what the book of we're doing Ezra, then Zechariah, and, and, uh, and Haggai. That's all about rebuilding the temple. They rebuilt it. And then Herod comes in in 20 B.C. and takes Zerubbabel's temple, gets permission from the priest to disassemble it and rebuild and expand it. And that was a touch-and-go situation. You're going to trust Herod the king to take your temple apart and rebuild it. It's like, no, this is, they didn't want to do it. We don't trust you. But only priests could do the building. Only the priests could cut the stones. So these priests are not like your modern-day pastors that, you know, can, you know, talk a 10-minute sermon and sit in a chair in an office and give you advice for life. 
uh, these guys could do, they could cut stones, they could cut up an animal, they could cut up a bull, uh, they could, they, they were handling animals, they were, I mean, they were, I mean, these guys were uh, very unique individuals, plus the Levites were the guards, and they could slice you up a thousand ways from one, besides cutting animals, they could cut up people, so I mean, the, the priests and the Levites were, a, uh, you know, they're the tribe of Levi, it forced to be reckoned with, nonetheless, I, de- this, de- de- what do you ever recall, got off subject, Okay, the court of the Gentiles. You can see that right there, and that's kind of laid out for you. Turn the page. There it is again. And now on the bottom of page three, now you can just see the retaining walls. You can see more of the ground before it all came up there. There it says in the middle there's a little stone, and you can see that. I can't see it, uh, but uh, I never got to go in there because you've got to go into the, into the Dome of the Rock to see the rock it's the dome of the rock what's the rock the rock is that right there pointing top of mount uh ark sat here on the bedrock there's carvings in that rock there's a probably a place a, a rectangular place where the ark sat uh there's a cave underneath it uh there's been some people that have worked and been some archaeological work in there but it's been under the control of the muslims since they decided to build their dome of the rock on top of where the uh the temple sat uh there was an orthodox jew several years ago that tried to go in there with some dynamite or explosives and once they caught they says no more no one can come in here but up until a few years ago you could actually go in there and view it and take photographs of that rock that's just it's just there's nothing really there uh there's rugs and stuff but nonetheless uh, you can see how it's not very level that middle square where it says Solomon's original platform wall, that is where it's at. And you can see uh, that where it's got that, the black dot where it says Solomon's original platform. If you move that about an inch you know, to the left along that wall, that's where I was pointing at. I was pointing at those stones right there that, are, that you can actually visually see, and there's no doubt that they are the western wall of the temple. That was Temple Mount, but it was buried when Herod expanded it. And you can see Herod's expansion then to the west, and you can see the Hasmonean expansion to the south, and then Herod's additional expansion to the south, and then, of course, to the north there. And that's what it would look like. And that explains the Temple Mount, and it's, that's that story. Uh, another page. Now we're looking at it from the top picture. Is if, you, if you don't mind, what we're looking at right here, the top picture, we are in what is called the Western Wall Tunnels. This is all buried here. Along here, you can't see the Herodian stones, but you can go into a tunnel and walk along the wall, and you can see the ancient gates that were still used. This now is in, there's a little room they've got there, and there's a, a model of the temple, and I've got it right there. I've got a picture of the model of the walls there, and then behind it is the actual wall, and that's, that's the stones right there, and there's an opening right there, and where I've got a little arrow, I've got a circle, it says wall behind model a little circle and i've got a little dotted line drawn up pointing to it that wall is right there on this model in this picture if that makes sense to you and that's again a picture of the western wall uh of the temple of jesus time now right here to the right of that picture is a little bitty square right there and it says western wall prayer plaza Today, people talk about the West, go to the Western Wall Prayer Plaza. That is right here. 
and it's divided into a court for the men and for the women. So when they go and touch the western wall, they're touching this right here. This is the part they're praying at. And when I was younger, I was under the impression, again, I can't blame anybody, it's just the way it was presented to me, the way I heard it, the way I understood it, or the way the misinformed presenter was mispresenting it, which I'm sure I'm mispresenting things uh, fairly consistently. That was the only part of Herod's temple or the temple of, of the New Testament stood, the only part. Well, first of all, this temple is totally gone. There's nothing, there's nothing. It's been scraped off like a bare rock. There's nothing. The temple is gone. This is not part of the temple. It's the retaining wall that held up the platform that was filled in with dirt that supported the platform where the temple stood. So this is part of Herod's construction. It's part of the New Testament temple complex but it is not the only part remaining because those stones continue all the way down here. In fact, I touched these at the very bottom, and they, they continue, and we're looking at them in the Western Wall Tunnel. We, we touched them all the way up here. This whole Western Wall is at some point still standing at some level going all the way down to the bottom. Now, again, you can see part way up. I don't know if it's how many layers. It's in the book, maybe seven layers of Herodian stones, and then they start to replace them as they come here. It's higher than that, I think, up here. Here you can see quite a bit. You can see Herodian stones all the way along the southern wall here. In fact, I've got it detailed in the picture showing you even the ages of where the swins, the stones were put in there. But all the way along here, you can touch them all the way along here. There's, there's corners of Herodian corners here. They're here. They're here all the way along here. Uh, uh, this is, I, I'm unfamiliar with that part, you know, but you know, there's got to be something down. But nonetheless, that's what you're looking at. And here, in that top picture, we're looking right here at this part of the wall. The bottom two are a model. And now you're looking now from the east. You're looking at it from the east. And now what you're looking at, you're looking at the east gate. And you're looking at the temple. And you can see Solomon's colonnade going, the pillars going all the way around. And the roof on there, that would be very, very busy. In fact, that's where the, they were selling the animals. That's where the money changing was taking place. Underneath there and out there in the court of the Gentiles. And then you see the court of the Gentiles. Then you've had the court of the women and then the men, and then the outer court of the temple, and then you're into the temple itself. But you can see right there, on the right and on the left, basically, is the court of the Gentiles uh, that is open for Gentiles to come worship. Now, two times in the New Testament, it's mentioned, one is in Acts, and uh, we, I would like to go read it to you, uh, in Acts 21, when Paul brings the money that he's collected from the Gentiles down to the Jerusalem saints. He meets with James uh, and some of the leaders of the church, and he brings them the money he collected from the Galatians and the Corinthians and, and all, you know, all the Gentile churches. He, they, it's a large amount of money. People traveled with him. He delivers a large, it's all coins, and he delivers the money. They convince him to go up on the Temple Mount and take a vow and, and take the vow of a Nazarite and, and cut his hair and just to show the Jews that, hey, I'm not, I have no animosity against the temple. I, I'm preaching salvation through faith in Christ, but you know, I, I'm still not anti-Jewish. So he goes, oh, yeah, oh, okay. And so he goes up there, 
But while he's on, this is Acts chapter 21. While he's up there, some Jews recognize him and know that he's been mixing it up with the Gentiles. And they think that he has brought a Gentile into the court of the Jewish men, has gone past the, the, the wall that's set there dividing the Gentiles from where the Jews can go. And they, they shut the temple. They, they start shouting, he's violated the temple. And once it's violated, they shut, down, shut the doors, shut down the sacrifices, drive everybody. It's like, it's like an you know, active shooter at the mall. I mean, it's like it's, they're done. And he gets arrested. They drag him up to Fort Antonia. And they think he's a terrorist from Egypt that they've been looking for. And everybody there, some are speaking Latin, some are speaking Aramaic, some are speaking Greek, and everybody's shouting. The Jews are in an uproar over a lie. They lied about it intentionally to get this all started. And uh, what had happened right there was they thought that someone had gone past the wall. That wall, Josephus records that uh, on this, the court of the Gentiles, and then you got here the, the, ten, the women, the, the men's, the court of the Gentiles, there's a barrier set up here with stones written in Latin and Greek. The Hebrews didn't need to read it in Aramaic or Hebrew, but the Gentiles in Latin or Greek, wherever you come from, you better read this. Josephus records this, and it's, it's very similar to what it says on this one. This stone right here was found in 1871, north of the temple. It was found here. You know, it is, they're excavating, or digging, building, whatever they're doing, and they find this stone, and it's in Latin and Greek, and it says on there in 1871, no foreigner is to enter within the balustrade and forecourt around the sacred precinct. Whoever is caught will himself be responsible for his consequent death. That was found, and uh, I mean, that's what it says right now, and that would be one of the stones. Uh, there is another one found, um, and that's this one at the top is in Istanbul. This one was a, f- a portion of one, and it is found in 1936, and that's in the Israel, Israel Museum. And that was right here outside the Lion's Gate. So one was found here, one was found here, and they're both telling the Gentiles, this is your last warning. You can worship outside, but you come in here, we're going to kill you, and it's your own fault. Uh, Paul refers, this is Ephesians chapter 2. You could go from verse 11 through 16. I've just got part of verse like 14 and 15 here or something. Uh, This is Jesus explaining the relationship now in Christ between the Jews and the Gentiles. And he talks specifically about this. The stone that he eventually was going to be accused of violating because he wrote Ephesians um, before this happened in, in, in Acts 21. Uh, but nonetheless, he writes this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away, the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. Not the blood of bulls and goats, but the blood of the Messiah. For he is our peace, who made both groups one, the Jews and the Gentiles, made them one, and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. That dividing wall of hostility is this right here. It's the dividing wall between the Gentiles and the Jews. He tore that down, and now it doesn't matter. You're coming in here not because of the blood of bulls and goats. You're coming in here because of the blood that was sacrificed. 
in his flesh he made of no effect the law, the law of Moses. In other words, he ended the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might, I mean, this was the law expressed in regulations and commandments. Here's what you do. He broke that down so that he might create in himself one new man from the two. One new man from the Jews and the Gentiles, one new man. The Jews were chosen to bring the message and the truth to the Gentiles. But by when the Gentiles came to the Jews, they were introduced them to the concept of the Messiah who was going to come pay for the sins of the world. And together as one new man, they could come to God through the Messiah. And that's what Paul is saying right there. So that's just interesting because that's going to play into our story a little bit tonight. Okay, uh, those are our pictures. And now we go to uh, page six and hustle through this. Um, there's the verses of chapter 1 through 11 written right there. And you can see on this first map, we looked at last week, there's Bethany, two miles away from Jerusalem. They're going to have to come up through Bethphage, which is on the summit of uh, Mount of Olives, and then turn and go down in. And the road, the Roman road from Jericho comes out at Bethphage and goes into the city, or you can turn left and go kind of go back southeast to go there. That's that. And then you've got the next two maps, Monday and Tuesday, of him coming up from Bethany to Bethphage, cursing the tree, going in to the Temple Mount. And now we begin on page, page 8. Um, and I think I've said everything there at the top of the page. The, the word Bethphage, the city of Bethphage, of course, Beth means house, house of, and phage, uh, unripened figs is what that would mean. So Bethphage means house of unripened figs. So Jesus is coming into the house of unripened figs. He's getting a donkey near the house of unripened figs, and he's cursing a fig tree at near the place called house of unripened figs. Um, chapter 11, verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples uh, and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, or opposite you. And it could be any of those three villages, probably Bethphage or in that area. And immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. Now this is Zechariah chapter 9, uh, a prophecy. If anyone says to you, why do you need this? Uh, say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back immediately. So obviously this is, this is not necessarily divine omniscience of Jesus knowing and manipulating, you know, uh, the force be with you and whatever. I think this is Jesus having made contact, having been in the area. In fact, the same account, you can go to the book of John, and it takes four months. That Jesus is in the area for four months. Mark gives the presentation. He's in Jericho, and a week later, he's in, uh, in a, on the cross, coming out of Galilee, Jericho, and on the cross. John gives you more detail that he came through Jericho, came up for one of the feasts, then leaves, goes through Ephraim, it goes over across the Jericho, comes back, so Jesus has been circling in this area for the last four months. Uh, and again, the church historians from the early church, they say Mark recorded Mark's, Mark recorded Peter's story, but didn't pay, you know, he, he arranged the events in his own order to tell the story. As he, he kind of did it in blocks to communicate. So it may not be, you know, there may be things that you could put in more details if you wanted to, but he was going for what he wanted. John does the same thing, except he picks out seven major signs or miracles that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Luke writes his in more of an orderly account of, so you can historically go through and map it out. So they're all written with a different angle, but they're all 
uh, you know, they all work together. Okay, so they go, go get this whore, this donkey. They went away and found a colt tied at the door outside the city, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told him what Jesus had said, and they let him go. Now, this is right out of Zechariah chapter 9. I've got some notes written here. This is, I've got the link there for the Zechariah 9 notes, and you guys have been through that. Uh, and this is talking about, the main thing is talking about uh, horses. In Zechariah, the difference in chapter 9 was Alexander the Great had come on a horse, a conqueror on a horse. Jesus was going to come on a donkey, and we're going to say donkey. We're going to change that, even say a mule, which is going to be different uh, in this, this idea here. Uh, because the, he's not coming as a conqueror, he's coming at a time of peace. And if you look on very quickly, and I appreciate your patience, look on page 10. There's the Hebrew out of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And I've got three boxes there. Uh, it, reading it backwards in the Hebrew, it, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion, the Jews. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you just, uh, just and having salvation, meaning righteous and having salvation. He is lowly and riding on a donkey and a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now there's three words there in the box, and I've got those written. It didn't end up on the right page there. You got to go back one page. The first word is a. He is a riding on a donkey, a male donkey, which is a colt, and that would be the next word is a male colt, and a foal uh, of a donkey, uh, the foal of a donkey, which means the whole idea there is this is a purebred. Uh, the, uh, the donkey, a purebred donkey, it, it's, it's like two or three generations, right there's two or three generations that this is a donkey. Because you could have a horse, but a horse bred with a donkey would give you the hybrid mule. And originally, the kings would ride donkeys in Israel, but once they got the upgraded sports model, the mule, a hybrid between a horse and a donkey, they rode the mules. Even David rode a mule, put Solomon on his mule for the anointing. Gee, this, but this is too close to a conquering horse. Jesus doesn't want to come in here in Zechariah on a horse as a conqueror, so he doesn't even want the mule because it's part horse. The verse explicitly goes out of its way to say this is a purebred donkey. Its father and its mother are donkeys. We're going to go back three generations. The father and mother are purebreds. So this is a donkey, nothing to do with a conqueror, nothing to do with Alexander the Great. And that's all those details that are there. And that is what is taking place right there. Chapter, uh, page 10. Um. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Now this goes back to 1 Kings. I've got it written there, 1 Kings uh, chapter 9. If you remember the story, Jehu was one of the... This is Galilee, Jordan River, Dead Sea. Here is uh, over here in Israel. Uh, Jezreel is here. Jehu, the general, 
is over here with his soldiers, with his middle, with his commanders. He's in his tent. And Elisha, it's time to anoint Jehu because they're overthrowing the house of Jezebel and Ahab and their four generations of their family. They're overthrowing. So he gives one of his servants, Jewish tradition says that is Jonah was given the oil to go anoint him. But it's a young servant, a young prophet of Elisha. It does fit. Chronologically, it does fit. It could have been Jonah or it could have been one of Jonah's classmates that were being trained by Elisha. There's no reason why it's not Jonah. One reason it's not Jonah, it doesn't say it's Jonah. It says it's a servant. And he ran over and anointed Jehu and uh, he, he called him out privately. And uh, anyway, you could read the story. But when his soldiers heard what had happened, they shouted, they shouted right here, Jehu is king. And they began to lay their cloaks down for him to walk on. They got their chariots ready and marched on Jezreel and took over and slaughtered the house of Ahab and Jezreel. Now, then that's exactly, he gets on a, on a donkey, which means he's not coming like a conqueror, but they begin to lay their cloaks down as if he's king. And, and Zacharias says, your king comes to you humble, gentle, riding on a donkey. He's not going to come like a conqueror. They recognize that here. Well, again, what is interesting about this, they recognize that as he's coming into the city, and everybody joins with it, and they're shouting uh, Psalm 118, 25 through 26. Uh, Hosanna, I'm going to go to Psalm 118 very quickly. Oh, my goodness. Psalm 118. Uh, and it, this is a psalm about the Messiah. Um, and they're shouting in the, in the text, in the English Standard Version, Hosanna, or save us. Hosanna means save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So it sounds good. Save us. You're coming in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So they recognize him as the Savior. They recognize him as the house of David. They recognize him as uh, coming to be the king in the house of David. And that's Psalm, or Psalm 118, verse 22. Um, I'll read verse 24. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, save us, in the NIV, which is verse 25, which means Hosanna. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, from the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God, and he made his light shine up on us with bows, bows in hand, we're in branches, join the festal procession up to the house, up to the horns of the altar. In other words, they're going into the horns of the altar for a sacrifice. Remember, when they get to the temple, nothing happens. They didn't, they didn't in a sense, finish this. Now look at, go back to... Uh, Verse 19, just read into this. Open for me, chapter 118 of Psalms, verse 19, open for me the gates of righteousness. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. Verse 22, Jesus quotes this, Peter quotes this. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. 
So right there in the middle of that whole thing, it says there's a stone that the builders say, nah, this won't work. And, there, and all the way through in Jerusalem here, different places, especially go up north here, Solomon's quarries, you can see it, you can see different places. Uh, there's stone, uh, Church of the Holy Sepulchre, uh, the basement of that used, in fact, that used to be a quarry before they turned it into a garden and turned it into a graveyard. It was outside the walls. But they got to the place where they're cutting stones, and the stone got so bad that they just stopped quarrying it, and it was rejected. And you can see in Solomon's quarries, places they stopped, or you can see things that were cut out. You can even find different places, archaeological sites, pillars that are cut out, and they're laying in the ground. They're carved, curved out, but they're not removed because there's, like, there's a crack in it. It's like, so they just walk away and leave and go somewhere else. And that would be the stone the builders rejected. You're cutting out the stones, all of a sudden you realize, ah, there's a crack in it, there's a mar. This is, not, this is not what we want, and they reject it. And this is saying, the stone the builders rejected, look where they put it. In the end, guess where they put it? They put it in, at the center of the building. They, they built everything and put it right there. So that's the, the first stone you see is this one. And so the stone, the builder, and this is what's going to take place right here. He's the stone, he's the king, and he's coming He's going to be rejected, but guess what? He's going to be the capstone of the building. And so it's interesting right there in that same verse, the verses they're shouting, Hosanna, it's like, did you read the verse before? You're going to reject him. And, and, and at the end of the week, they're going to be shouting, uh, 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 you know, let his blood be on us and on our children. And it, it's, it's got to happen. Okay, verse, chapter 11, verse 2. Uh, okay, verse 11, 11. After he entered Jerusalem and went to the temple, he went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, chapter 11, verse 12, on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Uh, and this, again, is a, an acting out parable, the fig tree. Uh, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if, it, if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Now, here's the season of figs right here. First, you're going to have harvest is going to be August to October. And then you're going to have winter. So this is going to be your ripe figs. Winter, uh, the trees are going to sprout buds. There's going to be buds, but they're just going to sit there on the tree for the winter. Uh, the buds then become small green fruits between March and April these buds become green. They begin to kind of swell up and become green. They're growing the fruit. This is March to April. And then as soon as this happens, if it be like, uh, you know, like say June or whatever, uh, maybe late April, they're going to start to turn. All the leaves are going to come in. It's going to be totally full of leaves. And the, 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 these green figs, which are called uh, P-A-G-G-I-M, pagim, uh, which are the little green uh, fruit, they're going to continue to grow, and when the leaves show up, they're going to as they're going as any kind of a fruit, you know, they they ripen at different stages until they're fully ripe by August. By August, you've got ripe figs. This is April, right in here. They're April. The leaves, April, May, June. The leaves have filled out. In fact, you can see right here. And seeing in the distance a fig tree, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. So these little green figs, have, they're there, but he's looking for ripe figs. And when it just has leaves and these things, and you could eat these, but they're not ripe figs. 
So that's what he's saying. Uh, and he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So he comes here and he finds the, just in this, if you describe it exactly like this tree, it's got leaves, but it didn't produce any of it. didn't even produce signs of, of young fig. The buds never turned into any kind of a fruit, which means there's nothing to eat, even a green fig, which they would eat. Uh, and it's not going to turn into ripe. So this is hopeless. I mean, it's a time for, we should start seeing the beginning of the, the fruit. It may not be ripe, but we should see signs of it. But he sees nothing. And so he curses it. And that would be taking place right up here, somewhere. Right down here is the, here's the uh, uh, Garden of Gethsemane uh, the, with the fig trees. Uh, so there'd be figs, all these. In fact, Bethphage is called the unripened figs. Um, and he said, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Chapter 11, verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. What is happening here? He comes in here, and he starts throwing stuff around. What he's got right here very clearly is here is your temple mount again. Here is the court of the Gentiles, and you've got your your colonnade going around it here is the temple and there's that boundary walls you know you can you can walk around out here the gentiles but only the men the women the men you know the whole story but the gentiles are out here including in the colonnade that's where the gentiles could go this is not a court for the it's a court of the gentiles it's supposed to be full of gentiles pressing in to meet the God of Israel. The Jews are supposed to be telling them about the God of Israel. They're supposed to have knowledge. They're supposed to have salvation. They're supposed to have advice, moral, ethics, lifestyle. They're supposed to be sharing with the Gentiles. But they're all concerned about, guess what they're concerned about? Jews and doing it their way. And, okay, we have to, we have to make room for the market because we, according to the law of Deuteronomy, you've got to have a Hebrew shekel to offer to buy with so when you come in you got to exchange your money to the hebrew shekel but if you're going to exchange money they will only accept the shekels from tire 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 and i've got a picture of the tyrian shekel uh is what they would only it's a gentile shekel it's pure it's the purest best coin uh available with no image so what they're going to want they want you to bring guess what they want you to bring the Gentile coins, the Gentile money. And then we'll take your Gentile money and give you a Hebrew shekel for you to buy your sacrifice. You've got to buy a pigeon, and your uh, sacrifice had to be approved. Your lamb had to be approved. You're supposed to watch your lamb, carry your lamb from the home, and everybody bring their own lamb, their own sacrifice. Sometimes it's too far to travel, so they'd set up a convenience place where you could pick up something on the way in. Uh, but they got to the place where no, we won't approve of anything. You bring it, it's like, yeah, that's not going to cut it. We're going to have to have you go buy one of ours. Uh, you got any uh, shekels from Tyre? Okay, we'll have to have that, and here's your Hebrew coin to pit buy your... And so they're making ching, ching, ching. The Gentile court had become a place to profit on the temple. And Jesus comes in and starts flipping this stuff over, shutting this down right here. And you can see what he's talking about. He, he says it right here. He's not upset 
with the, the temple system that was given by God. He's upset that they've turned the entire system of leading people towards Jesus. They're supposed to come up, welcome them into Jerusalem, and take go into the altar. We know what's going on. He comes here, and they, they'd have no clue. Jerusalem receives him. We, we know we're looking for the king. Deliver us from the Gentiles. Deliver you from the Gentiles. Let's go see what's going on in the temple. Where are all the Gentiles? It's like, we've driven them out. Uh, we're using this. Well, watch. And he would not allow any, anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? His first thing he goes, he says, Isaiah says, The Gentiles are supposed to be here praying. And you've, it's a market. It looks like Target. It looks like Kmart. It looks like... I'll stop there. Uh, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And that's coming out of Jeremiah, uh, where he says, uh, and again, I wanted to go to Jeremiah chapter 7 and read the temple message. We'll maybe pick that up next week if, we, if, we, if I want to and let you show it. But what they've done is they've taken the place of the Gentiles and driven out. Instead of welcoming the Gentiles, they've driven them out. They'll take the money, and what they're going to do then is to become a place of robbers instead of leading the Gentiles uh, to God. Now, that's what takes place there. And, of course, chapter 11, verse 18, And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. It's all making sense. What are we going to do? Because he has exposed our, our concept here. We, we're turning this into like a, a moneymaker, and we're supposed to be leading the Gentiles. I mean, he's got Scripture on his side. He's got the crowd on his side. He's got God on his side. And when evening came, they went out of the city, back to Bethany. As they passed by in the morning, they saw a fig tree with the, the fig tree withered by its roots. And Peter remembered, again, notice it says Peter remembered. Uh, and this is probably because Peter, Peter's brought up here. They probably all remembered. But Peter's brought out because Mark is writing Peter's account. And Peter says, I said to him, look, the fig tree that you cursed. Uh, and Jesus answered, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you. And then he spins us off onto uh, a, a teaching on faith and the mountain being thrown into the sea, and we're out of time, so we'll pick that up next week. Again, the key to this, turning over the tables and cleansing this, was the, 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 the religious system had turned the pure religion into a moneymaker. It had become a fundraiser to make money, and by making money, they're actually not doing what they were supposed to be. They were forsaking the calling God gave them to make money. Uh, I mean, it's one thing, well, you can make money and fulfill God's calling. They had to sacrifice God's calling to the Gentiles to replace it with fundraising. And uh, in, in most cases, just like James, if you're going to become a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. You, you're not, it's, well, we're going to do both. We're going to do both. That you, you can't, like we, we had that circle yesterday. It, it's, this is the world. This is God. You, you thought, I'm just going to stand here. You can't. If, you, if you're not in, if you're not do, drawing near to God, you're in here, and you don't know how far you can go back in this area here. Okay, I'll quit with that, and I'll pray, and we're done. Thank you for being here. Father, we do thank you for the chance to look into your word. We thank you for the history that's recorded here and also the, the life of the Spirit that in, in, in abides within your Scripture. We do ask that we would hear these things, understand them, and that they'd shine like a light in our own hearts that we may examine our lives and become a people that can serve you at this time in history. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for being here.